This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 10th. South Africa says Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and is set to make its case before the International Court of Justice. We'll talk to the South African High Commissioner to Canada and get reaction from Erwin Kotler, Canada's former Special Envoy for Combating Antisemitism. Plus, 14 federal MPs have decided they won't run again, and that includes 10 Liberals. The Power Panel is here to debate what that could mean for the party in the next election. The United Nations' top court is preparing to hear South Africa's claims that Israel is committing genocide in its Gaza offensive. In their case brought to the International Court of Justice, South Africa is accusing Israel of acts that are, quote, genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group. There's nothing more atrocious and preposterous than this claim. We will be there at the International Court of Justice and will present proudly our case of using self-defense under our most inherent right under international humanitarian law. Israel is calling the allegations a despicable and contemptuous exploitation of the court. The U.S. State Department says Washington has not seen, quote, acts that constitute genocide. Canada has so far not put out an official response. Hearings before the International Court of Justice will begin tomorrow, and over the next two days, both Israel and South Africa will have three hours to make their case. The court will then decide whether it has jurisdiction and if the alleged acts could potentially fall under the scope of the Genocide Treaty. Riyadh Sheikh is South Africa's High Commissioner to Canada. High Commissioner, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. It's no small thing to accuse a country of genocide, especially a country like Israel, with the history of, of the Jewish people and everything they've endured uh, on October 7th. How does South Africa justify this allegation? Well, we have uh, watched uh, what is happening uh, post the 7th of October, and we think that the actions, the military actions, and the intentions of the state of Israel constitutes, in our opinion, genocide. And we have brought this application to the World Court on the understanding that Israel, like South Africa and like all the signatories, has an obligation to prevent genocide, and in this case, I think now to stop genocide. Israel has continuously said they're exercising their right uh, to self-defense. They say that they give advance warning of missile strikes and and military action to the population of Gaza. That that allows them to move and that anyone intent on committing genocide would not take such actions. Well, 23,000 by today's count didn't seem to get that message, didn't seem to get that communication, half of which uh, are children, women, hospitals, schools. So we think that <coughs> an occupying force, as declared by the United Nations as an occupying force, cannot resort to the claim of self-defense. It has a right to protect. It must exercise that right to protect. It must protect its citizens, and it has a greater obligation to protect the civilians in the occupied territories that they occupy. 
What do you mean they can't claim the right to self-defense? Hamas is a, a designated terrorist organization uh, in this country and in other countries operating from within Gaza and other places. And it launched these attacks from in there on October 7th. Why, we, why does Israel not have a right to respond to that? We, we, we understand that. We understand, yes, there was these attacks. Those attacks were atrocious. As a country, we have condemned those attacks and we said Hamas should be investigated for war crimes. And it should and it must. But the actions of Hamas is not a justification to continue what we are seeing on a daily basis, which again, in our opinion, constitutes genocide. And the claim of victimization of genocide is not a right to perpetuate that against another people. So, so when you say they should stop genocide, does that mean they should stop all military actions inside Gaza, change the way they're conducting their military operations inside Gaza? Because you've heard P Prime Minister Netanyahu, members of his cabinet, they are intent on rooting out Hamas as much as they possibly can. And it seems as if their operations will not stop. So is there a way to change the way they conduct things to, to be in compliance with the standards you're holding? Yes, there is. There is a way. What is that way? start negotiations today for the creation of a viable Palestinian state. That is the way. That is the way of peace. That is the way you will have a lasting solution in Israel. To continue your military actions after 23,000 people dead, do you still believe that those actions are right? When is enough enough? When all of Palestine 1.9, 2.3 million are all killed. Is that point enough? No. Today it is enough. We've, the world has had enough of this. The peace negotiations for the establishment of a viable Palestinian state must occur immediately. Who would those negotiations be with? How would you even conduct those negotiations when Hamas, in their own words, on television, has said October 7th was a rehearsal and they will do it again and again and again and the genocide of the Jewish people is a founding principle of that organization. Well, the, to reduce Hamas, to reduce the Palestinians only to Hamas is a mistake. Uh, no, I understand that and I'm so not trying that, to do that, but correct. in there is Hamas with this threat. I, I understand it. Yeah. Now we had the same situation where we were told that we cannot have communists amongst ourselves when we were negotiating for our own liberation. And we were very strong that we must not determine for the other side who must constitute their delegation. We must allow the Palestinian people to determine for themselves who will represent them in negotiations. Now we cannot say, do not be represented, it'll be, it'll be incorrect for us to say that it is a political party in, in Canada cannot be elected to the government of Canada. It, it's just, just not... I, right. I understand that, but Hamas, you know, has, has ruled Gaza through fear and the gun for 15, 16 years. It hasn't had an election since really the first one. And I, I, I see no world where Israel and Hamas can sit down at the same table and negotiate. I, I mean, do you? Uh, I think it's possible. I think now more, more than ever, we need to redefine uh, the concept of who represents who. We cannot choose others to represent people. Let the people decide for themselves who will represent them. 
Now, the question of Hamas as a political organization, and it has been a political organization, and it has been accepted in discussions with uh, Israel in the past. In fact, there is the legendary uh, concept that Hamas was in fact created by Israel, but we won't go there. What we will now do is say, let the people of Palestine determine for themselves who will represent them in serious negotiation. And you hold all parties accountable to ensure that they engage in mm. peaceful negotiations for a lasting solution. I, I mean, they may have spoken in the past, but it feels like October 7th certainly changed the dynamic, perhaps irreparably, uh, certainly between this government of Israel and Hamas. David, we had a very similar situation in South Africa on the eve of our negotiations where a massacre occurred, where hundreds, if not thousands of people were killed. We knew that if we allowed that to derail the negotiations, there would be no peace in South Africa. So those who wish to negotiate must be quite aware that there will be forces that will derail such negotiations. But we should not be detracted by that. That should be an impetus to continue down the path of negotiations. You mentioned off the top that Israel is a signatory to the yes. Genocide Convention and you would expect them to comply with any finding by the, the, the World Court, the ICJ. South Africa is a signatory to the Rome Statutes, and your country has been criticized for not complying with orders for the International Criminal Court. Uh, for In 2015, Omar al-Bashir, the Sudanese dictator, was in your country. There was no arrest made despite warrants being out. The last time we spoke, we discussed the yeah. warrants against Vladimir Putin for yeah. what's happening in Ukraine. Is there a credibility issue there with the, the global uh, community of South Africa when you haven't lived up to your obligations under other mm. international legal court? Uh, requirements and now taking this action against Israel? David, let's just say this. We have acted consistently. We have acted consistently to all our obligations. To the extent that we may have taken missteps now in the, ter in, in the case of uh, Bashir, he left South Africa before the warrant was executed. So it was not that there was no intention to execute the warrant. He left before it was executed and the criticism has been that we should not have left we should not have allowed him to leave that's the first and the second we have stated our matter in regard to Putin when we discussed the last time he did not come to South Africa so there was no legitimate basis to execute a warrant of arrest so we believe we have acted consistently but the more important point of the consistency is that a we say all matters must be resolved by the United Nations in the spirit of multilateralism so that we could live in peace. What is the value, though, of a finding uh, from the ICJ? Say, say the World Court does decide um, that you're right and this is genocide uh, by the Israeli government. They also issued a finding ordering Vladimir Putin to stop his aggression in Ukraine, and that has been significant, completely and utterly ignored. I mean, what is the value of this in terms of its enforceability? Because mm -hmm. it falls to the UN Security Council to, to, do, to enforce the findings of this court. And as you're well aware, that is so divided, certainly mm -hmm. in terms of the sides that the permanent members are taking, vetoes uh, stop any kind of resolution or meaningful action by the UN on a lot of these things. So, so what would be the value of this finding should you get it? Well, firstly, just on the finding itself, we don't think that by tomorrow, the day after, or by end of the month, that the court will rule a finding on genocide. We think that will take 
a considerable amount of time. Mm -hmm. But what is more importantly, what's more important is that there will be a declaration on our interim measures that we are asking for, the provisional measures. And the provisional measures will bind all parties. It will place obligations on South Africa as well. But it will bring the obligation on Israel, the state of Israel, to desist from any further action, genocidal action. It will mean the cessation of hostilities. And included in the interim measures will be humanitarian assistance, which we can all agree is needed desperately in Palestine today. But the enforceability of that. I yes. mean, Russia has not stopped hostilities. You know, we're about to enter a, a third year of that war. Yes, which is, is again, it, as we have said, unfortunate. And we said the sooner that negotiations right. bring that conflict to an end starts, the better for everyone. And here we would think that once the, and we hope, we don't know for certain, but we hope that the declaration will be given on our provisional measures, it gives a furtherance of international law it gives a furtherance for all of us to rally behind international law and to bring about the humanitarian ceasefire that we are all asking for. Riaz Sheikh, South Africa's High Commissioner to Canada. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, David. 2023 was yet another year of international crises. This week, Power and Politics is digging into five geopolitical flashpoints to watch in 2024. Our coverage spans four continents, two wars, and a pivotal election that could define the international order for the next four years. We've spoken about the Middle East and India, and today we dig into Ukraine and Russia. The two countries have been fighting a full-scale war for nearly two years. Global attention was at first seized by the war, Canada, the U.S., and many European allies poured billions in military, economic, and humanitarian aid into Ukraine. The Ukrainian military was successful in repelling Putin's initial invasion, holding on to Kyiv, and recapturing more than half of the territory occupied by Russian forces. But now, both sides have dug in. Territorial gains are limited, casualties are mounting, and material support for Ukraine is slowing down. Andriy Shevchenko is head of the Ukrainian World Congress mission to Ukraine. He previously served as Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. Roman Waschuk is Ukraine's business ombudsman. He previously served as Canada's ambassador to Ukraine. Both are in Kyiv. Gentlemen, good to speak with you again. Thanks so much for joining us. Very welcome. Thanks for having us. Andre, I'd like to start with you, if I could. Uh, in recent days and weeks, Russia has been hammering Ukraine with drone and missile attacks. How have these attacks affected Ukrainians, affected Ukrainian infrastructure? It's just as painful as it used to be. In a way, nothing new. We are getting used to this sort of barbaric attacks. But the main thing, I think it's a very harsh and dramatic reminder to us. We are at the crossroads. Either we find a way to push Russia back, or we will have to pay zillions of dollars and uh, thousands, thousands of humans' lives in the future. Roman, um, Russia has been using Iranian drones uh, for a while, and we're now seeing them use North Korean ballistic missiles, contributing to the situation that, that Andre just outlined. What, what do you make of these developments, in particular North Korea? Uh, <clears throat> the Russians are able to be persuasive with their partners, more persuasive than the Ukrainians have with their Western partners, frankly, who continue to be reluctant to supply uh, the kind of rockets that could prevent these attacks. Where Ukraine's been more successful 
than last year is in air defense. Uh, by mid-January last year, we were in month two of power cuts, blackouts, uh, generator, widespread generator use. We're not there now, at least not in Kyiv. Uh, but uh, the, the Russians continue to ramp up their capability to try to now break through the improved air defense. And ultimately, the only way to stop that is by hitting the launch sites, not by trying to play only defense all the time. So, so Andre, just on that point, I, I mean, President Zelensky, he's been pleading with Western nations uh, for increased military aid, especially in that critical area of air defense. We're seeing things stalled, in particular, in, in the United States. I mean, how dire is this need right now inside Ukraine? Well, Kiev is now a relatively protected city, and when I say relative, it means uh, people still die in Kiev. Also, it's, it has uh, some very good... Uh, air defense, but it's just one big city, and uh, it's a large country, and uh, the Russians have a lot of territory to uh, to do their barbaric airstrike. One more thought: uh, most of the missiles that we see uh, in Ukraine right now falling uh, down from the Ukrainian skies uh, on our cities, they are produced still with uh, parts that Russia got from. Uh, from outside. Uh, many of those parts were produced in Western democracies in the recent months. And I think it's a great shame. And I think we must be much more uh, creative and much more efficient in uh, cutting those supply uh, lines. So, so just on that, Andre, is that because the sanctions regimes aren't tough enough, they're not being enforced enough, or Russia has just found a way through you know, third countries or different things like that to, to get around it? All of that, and I think there's a clear need to make that a big priority. So, so Roman, the, the recent increase in, in the Russian attacks, it, it comes at this time, as we were just talking about, where big-ticket EU and U.S. assistance packages for Ukraine, they're stalled, and, and, and the American situation is certainly fraught. I mean, er, earlier on in the war, you described Western support as enough to keep Ukraine on life support, but not enough for Ukraine to win this war. How would you describe the current level of support? It's wobbly. Uh, I think what we're seeing is a group of European countries that are deeply committed to helping Ukraine. That's the Scandinavians, for example. Uh, we're hearing positive things from... Uh, from the UK, uh, the Germans have stepped up, especially on air defense. Uh, the problem is that as time goes on, uh, Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine issue becomes uh, entangled with domestic politics in the US, most notably, but also intra-European problems. So uh, there's a need to keep signaling uh, that there's a need to keep moving ahead on things. And there's, there has to be that sense of urgency. Uh, you know, I think Canada and its announcement of a NASAM system that kind of isn't, nobody's really sure where it's at a year out uh, from the announcement uh, shows that there is an urgency issue everywhere, including Canada. Andre, how worried are, are you about that? Uh, that? That the world is, if it's not turning its back on Ukraine, it's sort of losing focus, losing, you know, urgency, as Roman describes it. What's your concern level there and what's happening in Western countries as this drags on? Two things. First, uh, timing is crucial 
One of the reasons the counteroffensive in 2023 was not as successful as we had planned it to be, because we had given too much time uh, to the Russians to prepare with the minefields and uh, with other ways uh, to um, to meet the Western weapons. Second thought, our long-term strategy is to say we must find a way to buy several decades of good, proper, genuine peace in Europe and in the world. And uh, we must be very strategic with that. I think we are moving in that direction. Only in the first year of war, we have stripped Russia out of uh, of 50% of its uh, land-based uh, attack of operational capabilities. We have made the Black Sea Fleet dysfunctional. We have exhausted their missile arsenal. So, in a way, we are making the world safer, but we are paying a very heavy price for that. Just on that, I know you regained a lot of the territory in the early push of the counteroffensive, but as you say, Russia was able to entrench and fortify its defensive positions. And it seems like it's fighting back and forth over a few hundred meters of land at a time. The line has gotten a little bit static right now. And I was reading a report that there could be a delay in the F-16s uh, uh, being ready to go. Uh, how would you describe the state uh, of the actual conflict on the battlefield, on the front line right now in Ukraine? Well, it's, it's a very active uh, combat zone. Uh, so one way to see it, it reminds to many what we... Uh, read about world war one mm. and from day and from the early weeks of the war it was a nightmare of the ukrainian generals we know we wanted to avoid this scenario of getting into this sort of trench world war one style wars uh, on the second uh, uh, hand uh, um, it's a lot about technology which is being used we see how important uh, is uh, how important are the drones the F-16s in the future are going to to play a major uh, difference because there is and there is an obvious disadvantage disadvantage when it comes to technology right now and when you talk about the skies. Roman, um, we're, we're a week away, less than a week away from the Iowa caucus, less than two months away from Super Tuesday as we head into the U.S. presidential election cycle where Donald Trump is very likely to be the Republican candidate. If he wins, U.S. support for Ukraine very much in doubt. What does that mean for Ukraine, potentially, for your perspective, a Trump victory in the fall? Uh, it would be very problematic. I think uh, Nikki Haley has a lot of fans now in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, I think it means a rethinking for Europeans and then also for Canadians, because uh, a Trump uh, second term is a huge challenge. Uh, for Canadian uh, security policy, which has assumed, been built on the assumption of being a bit of a free rider on the U.S. Uh, I think there needs to be a kind of a, in that situation, a kind of uh, non-U.S. transatlantic and, and fr frankly, worldwide discussion of how security can be maintained. I think the, the Europeans, a lot of them now realize they've got 12 months uh, to figure out how they can ramp up industrial production, how they can galvanize some of their uh, own security structures or a European pillar of NATO interaction, uh, because that is a definite threat. Andrea, I wonder, you know, the first time I think a lot of people uh, heard of Volodymyr Zelensky here in North America was going back to the first, to the Trump administration and, and his attempts to, you know, get information on Hunter Biden and, and leaning on the president that way. Uh, what's the concern level uh, uh, in Kiev, in Ukraine, of the possibility of a change in leadership in the White House in the United States and what that could mean for your country? I think we are much more concerned with uh, 
with uh, short-term challenges that come with the political turbulence in Washington, D.C. right now, mm. as we speak. Because we are going to feel an immediate uh, impact of the turbulence uh, in terms of military assistance and so on. When, we, when it comes to the future, I think we must think, uh, we must uh, take more strategic approach. I think by now we have learned that we can uh, work with anyone and everyone uh, in terms of uh, bringing uh, our truth forward. And I think it's very important to make sure that all the collective mechanisms of defense, of security, can uh, be used efficiently. Roman, I guess just as a final point, what would be a reason, as you look at the state of things right now, to be optimistic for Ukraine uh, in 2024? I mean, in the early days of this, you know, the Russians were right outside Kiev. The headlines were it's going to fall in 48 hours. Clearly, uh, it's gone in a very different direction. But what's a reason uh, to be optimistic for prospects uh, in this year? Well, in my professional business center world, we've had about 6% uh, growth on a rebound uh, in 2023. Uh, we have Ukraine through its uh, own uh, land-based missile attacks on the Russian fleet in the Black Sea, re-establishing export routes and putting millions of tons monthly out through uh, Odessa and uh, the uh, Danube ports. So I think uh, the fact that Ukraine remains viable, albeit with significant Western financial and military assistance, is uh, a sign uh, and cause for optimism. Roman Waschuk, Andrei Shevchenko, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Regardless of when the next election comes, there will be a lot of new faces in the House of Commons when it's over. As noted by our colleagues at the Hill Times, so far, 14 MPs across all parties do not intend to run in the next election. Ten Liberals among them, with long-serving party stalwarts like Carolyn Bennett and Joyce Marie choosing not to reoffer. So, what are the opportunities and the risks for the Trudeau government here? Polls analyst and publisher of the RIT.ca, Eric Grenier, has been looking into that, and he joins us now. So, Eric, uh, 14 MPs overall, 10 Liberals so far. Is this an unusual number at this point when a government's been in power for eight years? No, it, it actually isn't. When you're looking at the number of MPs that usually don't run for an election, uh, for re-election, it's actually quite a big number. In a minority parliament, minority parliaments tend to be shorter. About 9% of MPs historically don't run for re-election. In a parliament as big as one we have now, that would represent about 30 MPs, so the number is likely to double. When we're talking about majority governments, and of course this, uh, this government is a minority government, but is going to probably last for four years, as long as a majority government, usually have about twice as many MPs not running for re-election. So, it might be a little bit early to already be signaling that you're not going to be running again, but if the next election is in 2025, it would not be unusual to have 40, 50 MPs decide that they're mm. not going to sign up for another four years. Okay, but with the list we have now, and, and some of those could actually lead to by-elections in 2024, depending on when they decide to go, uh, and, and in some cases, those will be liberal MPs. It's a government that needs a jolt, and needs a boost. Uh, I mean, where are some opportunities for them to maybe get some star candidates to run in these seats to, to re-energize things if, if that's what they want to do. Yeah, it's not always a bad thing if an MP is not running for re-election when they've been there for a long time in a safe seat because it means that they liberate a safe seat for people to fight over the nomination. So there's a few of those happening. Emmanuel Dubourg, uh, Bourassa on the island of Montreal, probably one of the safest ridings for the Liberals in all of Canada. Uh, you have uh, ridings like Vancouver Quadra, Joyce Murray in B.C., 
And you have uh, also, uh, what was the third one? Guelph, of course, in southwestern Ontario. These are ridings that stuck with the Liberals in the 2011 election. And if a riding stuck with the Liberals back then, they're probably going to stick with them now. Uh, so these are places where you could put a star candidate. You could try to uh, attract a good candidate to come in. That not only helps win that riding, those ridings probably would stick with the Liberals anyway. But if you can get a name that you can then send on tour in neighboring ridings, then that can be really helpful. So these kinds of ridings, when they open up, there's usually a big fight for the nomination because that is really usually the biggest kind of election in those seats. What about, say, where the Liberals could be in trouble other than, say, all of them? I don't know if that would be your answer. I mean, given where things are right now, the double-digit deficit in the polls, I, I mean, there are some, there's real risk there if an incumbent leaves and if an incumbent leaves early. Where could that be? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because some of these ridings were won by just narrow mar- uh, margins. Nipissing to Miskaming in Ontario and Anthony Rota, the only one, he only won by a few percentage points. The fact that he's not running again uh, probably means that that's just going to be even harder for the Liberals to hold. When an incumbent doesn't run for a re-election, usually is an impact. It can be anywhere from up to five, six points. But then there's lots of other ridings where they're still going to be hotly contested. So the Liberals have to find good candidates. You know, Markham Stoville would be one of them. Mississauga Centre would be another. And Fleetwood Port in British Columbia. These are writings that the Conservatives won in 2011. Some of them were won by pretty big margins by the Liberals in the last election, but they're also in areas that tend to swing when a government swings. Uh, so for the Liberals, they need to make sure that they can find some good candidates to take those spots, because those are winnable seats, tough to win, but they're still mm. winnable seats, and so they need to make sure they have some good names. In other writings where they only won by a, a narrow margin, uh, if you can just find someone to put a name up and uh, have a sign on the lawn, that's about as, as good as it's going to get. All right, Eric, always appreciate it. That's uh, the writ.ca's Eric Grenier. All right, well, the Power Panel has been listening in. They're back with me now. Jonathan Kalis is a former Quebec advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, now a senior director at Macmillan Vantage. And here with me in studio, Jordan Leichnitz is the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. And Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of The Hill Times. Okay, uh, so Sherelle... Your, your paper did all the work here. Abbas <laughs> Rana's got all the dirt on the backbench of all the parties of what they're going to do. I, I mean, what's your, what, what were the parties saying uh, you know, to you guys as you were compiling this list, and, and where do you think this goes? Well, there's a few different factors that come into it, and what Abbas is really good at getting uh-huh. into all of that stuff, because he's you know our star, well, star reporter there, but um, MPs are finding it a lot harder than it used to be to be an MP. So it's not that... Um, difficult to imagine that when you're thinking about, am I going to put myself up for this for another go-round? That really does weigh on you. So when you add in all those different elements, like the fact that this is a minority government, we don't know when the next election is going to be. We can assume, but we don't know. Um, It's likely to be a change election. So are you going to put yourself, you know, through all of the the hassle of running again just to be, you know, wiped out and potentially embarrassed of losing your seat when you when you were an incumbent already? Like that's also something to keep in mind. And the fact, you know what, there was a hundred and there's more than 140 MPs in 2015. So that's eight years. Pension kicks in at six. People, if you've done the gauntlet for eight years, been there, done that didn't make cabinet, made cabinets, did what you wanted to do, 
you know, maybe it's time to move on. And when you have, you know, you don't know if, who the leader is going to be, potentially, you don't know mm. what's going to come next. There's all of these different elements that, that really tie into of whether or not this is something that you want to hold on to for another go around. Yeah, a massive amount of uncertainty and, and Jonathan, a massive amount of anger uh, out there. The, it's not a, a happy country uh, right now. We're seeing that in all democracies, really, in the West in terms of how politics is going. But Eric identified what he calls opportunities, seats like Borisaw uh, in, in Quebec. Uh, normally would be the place, okay, this is a renewal opportunity, let's get someone to go in there, but after eight years and, you know, with all the factors Sherelle outlined, is it the same opportunity it once was? Well, I mean, it, it's pre still pretty much a safe seat, I would mm -hmm. estimate, uh, one of the safest in the country. The, the question is, do you want to go in with at least the potential of going into opposition, I guess is the question at this point. From what I'm hearing, that writing, there are dozens of people who have at least thought about it and be interested um, because because it's a safe seat. And you have a few of those. Um, and I think, you know, Carolyn Bennett, Joyce Mercy, it, you know, we those were mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, why are people leaving and why would people want to come in? Those are two separate questions. You know, you have the question about, well, after eight years, you have your pension. Do you still want to be a backbencher? It's not the most fun for a lot of people. At some point, you get board, you had the expectation that maybe not the first go around, but eventually get into cabinet at this point after eight years. I think the writing is on the wall if you haven't gotten in yet. So, you know, those are all the considerations about leaving, about coming in. You know, people ran in 2015 when the liberals were the third party and they got a lot of fun, young, exciting candidates running all across the right. country and seats that certainly weren't guaranteed. So I think the opportunity is still there. It's a matter of well, do people want to, you know, commit to the public service, service part of what that is all about? Um, it's long hours. It's unforgiving. The amount of vitriol that politicians face these days, in pub, you know, just in public in general and then on social media, there's a lot of reasons not to do it. But, you know, I am hopeful, and it's not just for liberals, that people in general across party lines, good people will want to run, but it... I don't think it's the partisan issue. I think it's do you want to get into this mess right now because it's ugly. Yeah, well, I, I, I like the word you used, uh, renewal, uh, because yeah. I, I think there's two streams of it, and Jonathan alluded to it a little bit. If you're a liberal candidate and you're looking at the polls now, renewal could be a longer game. Uh, as it was in, uh, you know, 08 and, and 11 uh, until they won in 15. So your calculations could be very different. So if you're in your 40s or your 50s, that's, that, that, that could be fine. If you're a little older, that may not be what you want to do. I mean, it's interesting. St. Paul's is a fascinating writing. I, I think hell would have to freeze over if it, uh, before the Liberals lost it. And you heard, hearing the name of every very capable, able person, Leslie Church, well-known around here, senior political mm. person, uh, who's been uh, well regarded and well respected that if Leslie does run that could be a long play for her and good for the liberals if they can snag her but you look in our part of the world the so if renewal and how you think about renewal is one thing if you're the liberals it's also recruitment for the first yeah. time in ages and you were just home for 19 days uh, I'm not hearing names of people who want to put their name on a liberal ballot federally in Newfoundland yeah. and Labrador. I'm hearing lots of names of people who want to do that uh, for the conservatives and some who want to do it for the NDP. So when you look at these retirements, 
that probably influences you, your own level of enthusiasm, because Lord knows in politics it's easier to recruit people when they sense you can win, because there's this thing, David, called opportunism that sneaks in, and certainly... Tell me more. I, I know, I know. Uh, and uh, renewal uh, doesn't sound as exciting as opportunism, and opportunism is on the side of the conservatives today, mm -hmm. and in some writings, the NDP. But, you know, Jordan, it's interesting when you look at where some of the departures are going to be. It's not just the volume, because you can lose a bunch from safe seats and pretty easily That's restock. Right. Yeah. But you look at Helena Jasic in Markham Stouffville. You look at Omar Algabra in Mississauga Center, Ken Hardy in Fleetwood Port Kells. These are the battleground areas and rings in the major cities uh, that decide who holds power. In Absolutely. Canada. And it's going to be so critical to see if the Liberals are able to attract really compelling candidates in those seats. And I think that's going to actually be a little bit more the crystal ball about their fortunes there than, than actually the decision not to run again. Um, as Eric said, I think to me this isn't really a surprising number of people not running mm -hmm. again. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of folks uh, on that list are people who serve for a very long time and, you know, and I think particularly about the West Coast MPs, that's a very long commute that's sure very is. tough on people and families. And so, you know, there does come a point where people say that um, there may be they're not so keen to fight uh, another campaign and potentially sit uh, in the opposition benches. That's something that isn't very surprising. And I think we also have to acknowledge that the next campaign is likely to be a very tough and yeah. a very negative campaign. And I do think that that also factors into people's decisions because they have to, even if they want to be reelected, they have to come to that battle one more time. And the tone and tenor of it really makes a difference. It's a lot more fun to get on the ride on the way up mm -hmm. than it is on the way down. Yeah, and, and I actually think the next election is probably going to be one of the worst uh, mm -hmm. we've ever seen. Uh, it's just the mood and, and the vibe and, and where it's going to end. The personal distaste between the leaders is, is going to drive some of that. But, Cheryl, we could have some by-elections even before that, right? Like, uh, definitely in, in Carolyn Bennett's seat, mm -hmm. maybe in Omar Algabra's seat. I mean, what's your sense of the, the, what we might see in terms of change even before we get to the big sweep of, of renewal in the election? Yeah, well, I mean, and then the timing, of course, of these is going to be so important because right. you want to uh, disadvantage your opponent as much as possible. But everybody's looking at these seats and everybody's waiting. And a lot of these places, especially conservative, they're, they're already ready. They've got their candidates in place. They've been eyeing these seats for quite some time. Um, there are some seats that we haven't, um, like Aaron O'Toole's seat is, has yet yeah, to be yeah. filled in, in Durham. Like, so they're, so they're starting to, they're starting to stack up already and the, and waiting to see, you know, it's, I believe it's what, six months before a general election that you can't have a by-election. And mm -hmm. so all of those little calculations will have to come into play. And so whether or not we actually see these by-elections come to pass, I think is, is the first question to ask is before we even figure out who's going to run at them. Shana, what's your sense on the level of concern inside the Liberals of having multiple by-elections uh, potentially in the next 12 months? Is this something they're prepared for, concerned about? Uh, what, what's your read on it? I think right now you, you're really focused on two by-elections, the Terran O'Toole seat and Carolyn Bennett seat. I think we're coming up on the deadline for for uh, for Erno Tool seat to have the by-election. So I think what you're going to see is them being paired together, and they'll be right. on the same day. And what you're likely to see, unless hell freezes over in St. Paul's, is that the Conservatives keep um, uh, Durham and that mm -hmm. the Liberals keep St. Paul. And then we, you know, the punditry sits there and tries to analyze that when <laughs> safe seats were held by the same parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in a by-election. When we don't know when the next election will be, we'll try to read into it. That's what we a have. A 23% turnout. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we'll, yeah, we'll definitely know. book you. We'll, <laughs> John, we're definitely going to have you back. What's at stake in Durham and what's at stake in St. Paul? Nothing. We'll <laughs> exactly. I don't, know that, I don't know that that is something that is really driving them. Uh, yes, they control the timing of it. You know, I think we'll have it in the spring and mm. it'll be what it'll be. And I don't think it'll be indicative of much. Um, could others decide to retire before the end of the term? It's possible, but I wonder if if the Omar Al-Gabras or the Helena Jazics haven't decided to quit now, when are they going to do it? Like, why? either they're going to do, they quit now, yeah. or they're going to go to the next election. That's my guess, right. uh, and I think that's the feeling inside. Right. So, team, you know, just it's going back to the situation in, in, in Newfoundland and Labrador and to some degree Atlantic Canada, like, mm-hmm. look, it's a small sample size of friends and family yep. that I saw over Christmas. Didn't hear a lot of, like, joy with the home heating oil carve out. I didn't get the yeah. sense there's any kind of a lift there. And I even spoke to some people in the provincial liberal government when I was there. And they're kind of worried about the timing of their upcoming election and the timing of the federal election because of anger at Trudeau maybe, you know, playing out at the provincial. Like, it is a tough place for, for well, liberals in Newfoundland. Well, and look at the laboratory there now. There is a provincial by-election and a conserv- progressive conservative held riding. Right. A, a friend of mine, a friend of yours, colleague, former colleague yep. of both of ours, Fred Hutton, running for the Fury Liberals, who are styled as Team Fury. Nair red on that sign, yep. Nair mention of, of the Trudeau Liberals, because what is happening there, as was the case in Nova Scotia, as, as John O knows, uh, the provincial conservatives are trying to link them together because they sense that anger. Thus, again, bringing it back to the federal scene, uh, it's so difficult right now because all anger at the the broad macro political level seems to start with Justin Trudeau, and then others have bits and pieces parsed off of them. The only other thing I'd add about these by-elections, should they come, and I don't think it'll be the two that we've talked about that John rightly described as being so riveting and so meaningful. Is <laughs> if, if there are if there are other ones in potentially liberal-held seats, do we see? Mark Carney, uh, you know, a name often talked about, because the other thing that starts to play itself out here as you talk about the big R renewal is who's going to lead this? Because eventually, you know, Justin Trudeau will step aside. And if somebody's not in now and they want want to get some credibility, as all the party people here will tell you, now's the time you get the credibility. You go in when it's tough, not when it's easy. Okay, quick last word. I have a hard time imagining Mark Carney wanting to sit on the back bench uh, in the official opposition. And I don't so wish we'll that see. on poor Mark. He's a good man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe France needs a central banker. I don't know. He's, he's done it in two countries. Maybe he can do it in a third. All right, gang, we're out of time. I want to thank the power panel, Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Likens, Tim Powers, and Jonathan Kalis. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.